Hey friends, and welcome to another episode of Open House. If you've tuned into our first series so far, you'll know that we've live streamed a whole number of live therapy sessions on some awesome topics, including overachieving, perfectionism, sexual assault and sobriety, as well as how to handle the corona pandemic and so much more. This week, I'm coming to you from my very own homemade recording studio at my parents' house with a solo episode about the really sad and distressing breakup that I've gone through over the last couple of months. Whilst I'm certainly not out the other side of the breakup just yet, this is the episode that I wish someone had given me on that fateful day when my ex-boyfriend called me up and told me that he needed space. Whilst it was something that we had discussed beforehand, the phone call came totally out of the blue and it just set off the most awful chain of events that sent me into a total tailspin. Breakups are hard enough in normal day-to-day life, but there is something about going through any kind of breakup during a global pandemic that seems to make the feelings that it evokes even more intense. So in today's session, I'm going to share with you the top 10 things I've learned in therapy that have helped me get through those awful first few weeks. If you yourself are struggling or you know someone that is, I would always advise for you to seek professional help where possible. If that's not possible, then I really, really hope that you can take what I've learned in therapy and apply it to your own situation in some capacity. Whatever you are going through, my heart truly goes out to you. I would not wish heartbreak on anyone. For anyone that is interested in going deeper into this topic of heartbreak and working on their healing at home, in the next two weeks, you'll be able to head to thisisopenhouse.com to get access to a re-record of a live therapy workshop with myself and clinical psychologist, Dr. Helen, where we explore the psychology of heartbreak and how to move forward in times of a crisis. In addition to this, myself and Jamie Clements, the founder of The Breath Space, will be hosting a live breathwork session to help us use our breath to tap into our subconscious so that we can release trapped emotions and energy and move forward. The recordings of these sessions will be available free on our website as a resource for anyone in need. Now, into the top 10 things that I wish someone had told me before my breakup started. Number one. When the breakup first happens, you are not going crazy. Your body is, in fact, going into panic mode. For me, from the moment that I put down my phone on my ex-boyfriend, I felt like my whole world came crumbling down around me in an instant. I can remember the day that it happened so vividly, and it feels like it's almost been etched into my memory as a moment of major trauma. The second that it happened, I felt the blood whoosh into my ears. And in that moment, and judging by the cold, disassociated and unemotional way that he delivered his message, I knew that I had just lost what felt like everything. This was the person that I had gone on the most transformative emotional journey with. We had gone through the highs and lows of lockdown together, and we'd both started our therapy journeys at the same time. I had told him everything about me, every hope, every fear, and every dream. He knew my deepest secrets, and in that moment, he left with everything. The next few days and weeks were totally horrendous and a real blur. I went into full-blown panic mode. I felt sick constantly. I couldn't eat, and I lost about half a stone in 10 days. I cried constantly to the point that it felt like my eyes were actually broken. My chest hurt, my heart hurt, and everything just seemed to be a total blur. I didn't know what to do with myself. I was too panicked to do anything, but I also couldn't just lie around because I kept thinking about him and replaying that last horrible conversation, as well as our whole relationship, on repeat. I felt like I was going crazy, and I really thought that the severity of these emotions was a clear indicator that we should, in fact, not be breaking up, but very much should be getting back together. For me, 
Understanding the science behind this intense reaction in those first few days and weeks really helped me to understand the severity of the state I was in and that it actually wasn't a reflection of the fact that I should be with this person. It was, in fact, my body going into panic mode. So here's a rundown of what happens when you're on the receiving end of rejection or a breakup. The second that your partner drops the news on you, which your body classifies as rejection, and this is important as we're going to come to it later, your body goes into a stress response called fight or flight. Our adrenal glands start to instantly churn out stress hormones such as cortisol and adrenaline. Your blood pressure is going to instantly skyrocket and this rejection will actually stimulate blood flow to two parts of the brain that are involved in producing physical pain. Your body might feel like it's aching all over or that your heart literally feels like it's hurting. Understanding that if you look at a brain under an MRI scanner during a breakup, it logs the rejection of the breakup event in the same way that it would log an event of physical pain. This helped me to really understand the severity of what the body was going through at this point and that it really thinks it needs to protect you. At the same time, your stressed out nervous system is also going to be taking all of the blood away from your digestive system because it's priming your body to face up to the impending danger and right now your body does not need to be digesting your food. This means that you're going to lose your appetite and might experience some really unpleasant stomach aches. For me, from the second it happened, I felt physically sick and literally could not eat anything. Another side effect of entering this fight or flight reaction is that your body will make your breathing shallow and rapid to increase your oxygen intake, again getting ready for you to fight. For me, I felt so anxious and that I couldn't breathe at all. My chest felt so tight and I honestly felt like I was on the cusp of an anxiety attack at all points. There are two more things that I learned here about the breakup response that aren't just short-term reactions, but more mid and long-term ones too. Firstly, I learned that crying for long periods of time actually releases oxytocin and endorphins and essentially acts as an anesthesia to the pain that you're going through. Secondly, I learned that any kind of elevated levels of cortisol and stress hormone over an extended period of time is actually likely to suppress your immune system, making you more likely to get unwell than ever before. I mean, there isn't much worse on the planet than going through a breakup, but going through a breakup and getting unwell at the same time is really something to be avoided. Once I got this understanding of all of the science of what I was going through, it enabled me to be able to handle those first few days a little bit better. The first few days are going to be horrendous, but you need to cry and feel it out. The tears are going to come and come, but know that as they come, they will in fact help to calm you. In some moments, you're going to feel like the pain is never ending, but know that scientifically, those tears are helping you. They are nature's anaesthetic. Number two, try to calm yourself and your nervous system and bring yourself out of fight or flight where possible by using Bark Flowers Rescue Remedy, a flower remedy shown to calm our nervous system in times of crisis. Secondly, I would explore breathwork. It's a powerful tool to take our body from fight or flight and into the more calm rest and digest phase. In the moments when I could feel everything starting to wind up into a panic or a panic attack, I would focus on making my exhale longer than my inhale, as well as using essential oils like lavender to try and calm me down too. Thirdly, even though you don't want to eat, you need to focus on the fuel you're putting into your body or you will get sick. Try to eat small, nutritious meals or even just handfuls of fruit or vegetables. I also found it really helpful to have a protein powder or something like Huel, which is a nutritionally packed smoothie, for the days that I really, really couldn't eat anything, but that I knew I needed some nutrients. 
Finally, if you take supplements, now is not the time to stop taking them. I kept up with my daily supplements of vitamin D, vitamin C, vitamin B12, selenium and zinc every single day. Understand that even though you feel so low that you just want to crawl into a hole and forget about everything that's happening, now is when you need to show up for your body more than ever before. It's trying to help you, but you have to work with it. This brings me to my second point that really, really helped, and that's understanding that this panic response that your body has brought to the foreground is actually coming from a place of protection. Everything made a little bit more sense when my therapist taught me that this response was coming from the rejection that I had experienced. As human beings, we have an innate need for acceptance and inclusion that is literally built into our DNA and our entire beings. And this comes from when we used to live as cavemen. When this was how we lived, we lived in packs and tribes that lived, ate, slept, hunted and moved together. And doing so in groups meant that our chances of avoiding predators and surviving together were much, much higher than if we had to live on our own. Over time, any sort of rejection from our pack would have been viewed as an actual threat to our physical survival. Basically, you would have been left out in the open, unable to protect yourself, and you probably would have died. Understanding that today our primal brain can't distinguish the rejection from my ex-boyfriend to the rejection of being abandoned and basically about to die as a caveman helped me to better understand why I was taking the rejection so badly. Something was hardwired into me and this thing was fear. I was fearful and scared, deeply scared both consciously and subconsciously. Scared that I had lost everything, scared that I wouldn't be able to survive or find happiness again, and scared that I would never be able to find another to share my life with. Once I understood this fear, I understood that it was coming, really, from a fear of the future and a fear of being on my own. This enabled me to better understand that the only way to combat this fear was to focus on the present moment rather than what lies ahead. I know that this is very much more easily said than done. But in the moments that the fear and the panic were kicking in, I would calmly focus on my breathing and focus on that very moment in time where I was warm and safe at home. I would tell myself that everything was going to be okay. I just had to take it minute by minute and hour by hour. I would often say to myself, it's okay, you're safe, you are going to be okay. And whilst I really didn't believe it at the time, I really understood the power that thoughts and words have on our neural pathways and thought processes. Whilst I don't condone distractions from the pain, I do think that in the first few days and weeks when the fear really grips you the hardest, healthy distractions in moderation can really help here. For me, I found that watching things that had no relation to romantic relationships at all were really helpful, and things that were gripping were great at distracting me, even if for half an hour. I waded through Ariana Grande's new documentary because I love her and I rewatched Euphoria which was beautiful, amazing and stimulating and I went through all sorts of crime and prison related shows. They definitely got me thinking about something that was not love. However, when I wasn't distracted, this conscious or subconscious fear would rise up in me often and I was so, so desperate to talk to him and either to get back together or at the very least just to talk it out and be reassured that everything was going to be okay and that everything we'd gone through wasn't in vain. The intensity of these feelings made me feel like I was going crazy and that I really, really needed to get back together with him. So this brings me to point three. You need to understand that your brain has gone into addiction mode and this is when you need to retreat, not go towards them. 
My therapist taught me that in the wake of a breakup, humans can experience cravings for their ex-partner in the same way that a drug addict will crave a drug. In fact, if you use an MRI scanner to look at the brains of those going through unwanted breakups and you show them a photo of their former partner that they want to be in touch with, the same parts of the brain light up as they would if you were showing a drug addict a picture of their drug of choice whilst they were going through the process of going cold turkey. In the first few weeks at least, understanding that you are literally going through something not dissimilar from a heroin addict coming off heroin can help you understand why you feel so desperate to talk to them and also to understand why you need to be more gentle with yourself than ever before. I also thought it was really interesting to understand that the brain scanner shows that when your brain is activated in this way, we're driven as humans to find this object or substance that we're craving. This really helped me understand why, from a biological perspective, I was so desperate to contact my ex, even though he clearly had no interest in contacting me. For me, the closest thing I got to a solution here was as follows. Every time I wanted to message him, I would write the message down in the notes part of my phone, on the basis that if I still wanted to send the message in 24 hours time, then I would allow myself to. The interesting thing is that 99% of the time, when it got to 24 hours later, I actually couldn't think of anything worse than sending him the message I'd written down. It was always highly emotional, so dramatic, and was literally telling him how much I loved and missed him and I couldn't believe that he had done this to me. This, for me, worked really, really well. And over time, instead of just putting down sporadic messages that I wanted to send him, I also started to write down longer form thoughts and feelings about him and our breakup, as if I was writing a letter to him. I ended up writing it and rewriting it to the point that it became such a cathartic exercise, but it also kept me out of the addiction cycle of opening up a conversation with him. I'm not sure if this will work for everyone, but for me, it definitely felt like a way that I could almost engage with him without engaging with him. And I also knew that one day, if we ever speak again, I will have put all of my thoughts down on paper and we will be able to have a rational, emotionally mature and balanced conversation because I had processed everything really well. This brings me to point four, which is that once you understand the addiction cycle, you can take control of it. When you understand how the brain works and that a breakup essentially means that you're going through rejection, fear and withdrawal, you can break this addiction cycle, not only by removing all of the stimuli that keep the cycle going, but also by objectively identifying the facts that the addiction cycle is trying to hide from you. When my boyfriend broke up with me, he broke my heart even more by deleting everything that we shared together. Our shared calendars, our shared notes, all of our diary invites and events that we'd accepted together. It absolutely crushed me and I remember walking down the street literally bawling my eyes out on the phone to my mum. And whilst I still think it's really cruel, I can now understand that he probably was just trying to remove the painful stimuli from his side. In today's society, with social media everywhere we turn and with our phones full of thousands of photos, videos and memories, it feels like it's almost impossible to get rid of the stimuli. But I promise doing so will really help you. Something that my therapist taught me is that psychologically, out of sight and out of mind is actually a thing. It allows the retrieval pathways of memories to weaken and become less accessible over time, which will mean that eventually, when the memories are recalled, they won't return with such a vivid impact. 
basically they won't have you crying as you walk down the street when you look at them. <laughs> I was lucky that my boyfriend was one of those crazy people who had no digital footprint whatsoever and literally no social media and this for me was a blessing because I knew from experience how much of a stalker you can become on Instagram and how it can drive you absolutely insane. So whilst this wasn't relevant to me, if it is to you, please know that to really break the addiction cycle, you have to block them. For me, breaking the addiction cycle meant getting rid of thousands of messages, photos and videos that we had together, as well as working out what to do with the even more special moments such as the letters, cards and gifts. For me, this totally, totally broke my heart because as I read back through our messages, I could literally see us falling in love and sharing our deepest, darkest secrets, desires and life experiences together. At this point as well, I really just didn't want to break up, so I didn't want to break those memory pathways. However, I knew that deep down, whatever lay ahead, I needed to work out a way to be able to function on a day-to-day basis and having all of these memories right there in my phone were not going to help me. I spent hours highlighting thousands of photos in my camera roll, adding them all to an album and then hiding the album so they didn't appear in my camera roll. If you can't trust yourself to not go into this album, then you can also consider buying an external hard drive and moving everything onto there as well. I backed up my phone so I had a copy of all of these amazing messages and then I deleted everything, including his phone number, even though I knew it off by heart so it really felt a bit stupid doing that. In terms of the physical stuff, I kept every gift, every card and every letter he gave to me. I know that one day I will want to look back and read them again. And then I threw away everything that was non-critical. The food in the fridge that we used to cook together, the products that we use in the shower together, the clothes that he left at my house and his toothbrush. It broke my heart into a thousand pieces whilst doing it and I literally sobbed on my kitchen floor alone with a bin bag in my hand, heartbroken that it had come to this. I knew deep down though that whatever lay ahead, pulling the band-aid off the addiction cycle was one step closer to moving forward, even if I really didn't want to. The other thing that I learned in therapy was that to break the addiction cycle, you could also identify and write down the objective facts of the why we were breaking up to counteract the addiction. Initially, I found this really, really difficult. And as you can probably tell from this podcast, I romanticized him and our relationship so hard and I still do. But underneath it all, even I could admit that there were reasons why this had happened. My therapist encouraged me to write down all of the things that did not work well between us, the things that were incompatible, the things or the ways that he treated me or things that he did that really hurt me, things that I accepted or compromised on in our relationship that I didn't need to, and traits of his that would maybe make him more compatible with someone else that wasn't me. I felt almost guilty doing this exercise and found myself thinking, but there are so many good things that these negative things are so minor. But even getting these incompatibilities down on paper helped me to stop romanticising the relationship and start to move into more of a realistic assessment of what had happened between us. Yes, there were some amazing things, but actually there were also things that didn't work so well between us. I tried to respect the fact that he was allowed to have his own opinion on the situation and that I didn't necessarily have to take it personally. In my opinion, the way he handled the breakup was incredibly cruel. But this objective exercise helped me to see that maybe he had his own reasons too and that this was actually the only way he knew how to deal with it. Something that I also found incredibly interesting when comparing how he was dealing with the breakup versus me brings me to point six. Understand that your personality type and attachment style might be influencing yours and their reaction to the breakup. 
I think it's typical after a breakup that we compare what we're going through versus what our ex is going through. And we often find ourselves desperate for any information from friends and family about how they're doing. It often feels like one party, often the person who did the breaking up, is doing better and is less distressed than the other. And this then evokes a whole new set of emotions. For me, my heartbreak was made even worse by seeing how my ex-boyfriend could seemingly be experiencing zero pain whatsoever, or, alternatively, knowing how much pain I was in because I know that he knew because people had told him, yet doing absolutely nothing to even acknowledge it. This was the person that just a week earlier was talking about spending his life with me, and then bam, nothing. For me, therapy helped me to explore how my and his personality styles, way of processing emotions and attachment styles were vastly different and thus were likely to be impacting the way that we were both dealing with this breakup. Simply put, my therapist explained to me that I'm an externalizer and he is an internalizer. I externalize my emotions. I cry and I talk and you can outwardly see my distress. Whereas for him, he is and always has been an internalizer. This seems so simple, but it was a tiny step forward in understanding that these different nuanced facets of our personality allowed me to understand that we just deal with painful emotions differently. My therapist also explained to me that just because you can't see your ex-partner externalising their pain doesn't mean that they don't feel anything. The likelihood is, is that of course they do, unless they are literally a sociopath. (laughs) Secondly, understanding how my attachment style was likely to impact my breakup behaviour and vice versa with him helped me to rationalise the fact that he probably didn't hate me in the way that I thought he did and he maybe wasn't even intending to be as cruel as it felt like he was trying to be. It was just his attachment style coming into play. So, rewinding quickly on what attachment styles are. We all have a romantic attachment style based on how our caregivers dealt with us in early life and this then develops into the models of who we are as grown-ups, how we act in the world and how we connect in our romantic relationships later in life. John Bowlby did some great work here looking at how attachment styles impact our breakup style. He found that securely attached individuals usually face relationship breakups with more resilience, acceptance and emotional recovery than insecurely attached individuals. They use breakups as an opportunity to understand what they need and want in a relationship in order to be happy. John found that those with a more anxious attachment style often get overly attached and place more emphasis and self-worth on their romantic relationships and the other, which is why of all of the attachment styles they take the breakups the hardest. These people respond to breakups with more extreme emotional and physiological and psychological distress, as well as preoccupation with their ex, verging into alcohol and drug abuse, as well as experiencing a loss of sense of their own individual identity. For those, however, who are more avoidant in their attachment style, they are more likely to disconnect and they will seem to feel little after the breakup and they will be very rational in telling themselves and others why it didn't work. This, however, is actually an evasive tactic used by avoidant attachment styles to repress uncomfortable feelings. And eventually, John says, these feelings are likely to catch up with them, sometimes later on down the line, when they actually might find that their more anxious partner has already made a great deal of progress at processing their feelings, despite the initial distress that made them feel like they were never going to be able to get over it. For me, understanding that me and my ex-boyfriend had vastly different attachment styles actually helped me to see why we were dealing with things so differently. 
And if you are anxiously attached, don't worry. John Bowlby actually found that anxious individuals' heightened breakup distress can actually act as a catalyst for personal growth by encouraging the processing of breakup-related thoughts and emotions, whereas avoidant individuals, for example, often their lack of distress will stall their personal growth by inhibiting this self-reflective work. Maybe John was right after all, because as I started to enter into month two, I found myself feeling a little bit more up for doing some reading and starting to work on open house again. Throwing myself into things that I really cared about and that helped both me and others were some of the only things that kept me afloat during this period. And I think that this ties nicely into the next point. Point seven, work out what gets you going. I don't know about you, but the moment that my relationship crumbled, everything changed. We had spent so, so much time together from the moment that we'd met. We'd lived together, we spoke constantly when we weren't together, and we would literally spend hours and hours on the phone discussing anything and everything. We knew the places that we liked to order takeaway from, and we knew the TV shows that we had coming up. All of a sudden, with him leaving the picture, all of these things felt hard and far too painful for me to consider interacting with on my own. And so I realised that this was a time for me to reassess and work out what gets me going on my own, not as a couple. An exercise that I found both incredibly helpful and really, really challenging was one that my life coach set me. He asked me to write down 25 things that I was interested in or curious about. And let me tell you, this was seriously hard work. I could hardly come up with 25, but when I did, it was so clear that over 90% of the list were related to psychology, mental health, human connection, functional medicine, health, fitness and spirituality. Whilst being in the middle of a pandemic here in the UK, I knew that I had to pick things close to my doorstep to help me and keep me engaged. There was going to be no jetting off to Bali or LA for a yoga retreat and no nights out to distract myself and I couldn't even go and see my friends if I wanted to due to the lockdown restrictions. So I looked closer to home and I felt like this exercise really helped to give me a clear direction and clarity on what gets me going and where I should be looking to invest my time. I realised that other people were dealing with heartbreak too and I wasn't alone, so I started pouring myself into open house to work out how I could help both them and me. When I missed my ex-boyfriend and the amazing conversations we used to have, I found friends that I felt were able to have the same types of conversations with me around topics that I felt passionate about and I tried to keep these conversations going. I sponsored a child in Kenya and I wrote to her. I reached out to women's charities and helped donate my clothes to them that I no longer needed. I got a puppy who has brought me so, so much joy and kept me heavily distracted. I read more and more about functional medicine and I looked into doing my integrative health practitioner course so I can help others who are struggling with chronic pain, disease or illness. In short, breakups can often lead to a loss of your own identity and sense of self because you get so used to being in a couple. By completing this exercise, you can start to rediscover what you are interested in. And maybe this can be an exciting period where you finally put yourself first for the first time in a long time. I know it really doesn't feel like it now, but maybe this will be the only time that you might be alone again for the rest of your life. And this brings me to my next point, point eight. Don't view this as a period of darkness, but view it as a period of self-development. Now, don't scoff at this one because I know that I definitely found it initially really difficult to get my head around this one because the overwhelming feelings of grief, rejection and abandonment meant that I literally couldn't think of doing anything worse than working on myself. 
I literally wanted to lie in bed every day, watch Netflix, feel sorry for myself and hope that one day I might wake up and realise that the whole thing had been an awful nightmare and my ex-boyfriend was there on the other end of the phone or at my door telling me that he'd made a horrible mistake and we were absolutely meant to be together. But sadly, this kind of isn't really real life. And at some point, once the initial stages of a breakup starts to become slightly more tolerable, we need to understand that, yes, the pain still exists within us as a dull ache, but it's time for us to take control of our future and where we are going. Now, I'm not sure that any therapist would support the following advice, but I wanted to share something that my friend said to me, just in case it helps you in the way that it helped me. She said to me, Louise, you do know, right, that if this is meant to work out between you two, it will. And in the meantime, all you can do is focus on yourself. Imagine that you two do come back together. Do you want to come back together in two, six or 12 months down the line and still be the same person that you were when you left each other? If the relationship is going to work, you both have to face up to the things that weren't great, which you are both responsible for. It takes two to tango in a relationship and one of the things that he loved about you so much was that you always took feedback on board and you developed and moulded accordingly. So use this period to show him that he wasn't wrong and if the relationship never does come back together then know that there will be something much much better waiting for you and that you're going to be an even better version of the one that you were in that relationship for the next one because you've used this period as a flashlight into you and yourself and all of the areas that you can work on to elevate yourself into a different version of you. This really hit me. I needed to work on myself, not for him or not for my future partner should there be one, but because whatever situation I end up in, I want to turn up as the most kind, compassionate, emotionally aware and intelligent version of me. I want to be the best partner and the best friend. She said to me, there were so many ways in this relationship that he felt so loved and cared for and nurtured by you. But this relationship has also shown you areas that you need to work on. I know that you feel guilty for some of the things that you did in that relationship and ways that you made him feel. And so you need to use this as an opportunity to go deep into them and work out why you acted the way you did. She's not wrong. I was an amazing girlfriend for lots of that relationship, but I also did some things that weren't so amazing. In that moment, I realised that now is the time for me to look inwards and get to know myself better so I can show up as a different version of myself when the time comes that I feel ready to go back out into the world. Yes, it feels incredibly dark post any breakup, but just know that you have a flashlight. You just need to turn it on. Point nine of what I learned in therapy that I found really, really interesting was asking yourself, are you looking for closure or connection? Okay, so at this point, let's not pretend that after a couple of days, weeks or even months that everything goes back to normal and you just stop loving the love of your life and settle into single life as if the whole relationship was just one big dream. Nuh-uh, unlikely. And even into week six, seven, eight and beyond of the breakup, I was desperate with a capital D for closure and to talk to him. I was so desperate to see him, to speak to him, to work out why and what made him pull the plug like that, to work out if we should be getting back together, whether really we were each other's soulmates, whether we could be friends again, or whether this pain meant that actually we should be together. I was literally so desperate for closure that I continued to dream about him all the time. I knew we couldn't start speaking because he didn't want to, otherwise he would have reached out to me. But I had so much to say and I was still hurting so badly. For me, 
Once I started to look into closure more, I discovered something really revolutionary. And what I learned was that a desperate need for closure is in fact really just a desperate need for connection. We say that we want closure, but actually closure is fear and attachment in disguise. Closure is hoping to get control of the situation. Closure is hoping for a different answer than the one you've been given. Closure is a last ditch attempt that you might be able to get a foot in the door and change their mind if they can just see or speak to you and remember all of the good times you experienced together. Closure is hoping for them to say something, anything that is going to make this easier. Closure, however, whatever form it comes in, is basically a desperate cry for connection. One more time, just one more time. I think we all have this big dream that if we can just speak to them, then they're going to say something that will help us be able to put this together and move forward. But for me, when I caved on New Year's Day, desperate to wish him a happy new year and to tell him that I couldn't stop thinking about him, the response broke my heart even more. It made me realise that nothing he could say could make the pain better. And whilst he definitely didn't say anything mean, I realised that he had no intention of saying any of the things that I desperately thought that I needed and wanted to hear. Nothing I could do would evoke the words that I thought I needed to hear from him. My kind, sweet, compassionate, loving boyfriend and friend seemingly died alongside the breakup. And so I realised in that moment that I needed to give away hope that he was going to give me any sort of closure that would make things easier for me. This was really, really difficult, particularly as he had been so kind, vocal and caring during the relationship. And this has definitely been one of my biggest parts of growth so far. It's been probably the first experience in my life where I've just had to accept that sometimes really sad and painful things happen and you just might not get answers as to why. For me, knowing that closure was actually a last bid for connection really helped me understand that I just wanted him to say things to me or give me answers that would feel better. Maybe you have an ex-partner who is going to tell you how wonderful, beautiful, handsome, kind and lovely you are and how amazing the relationship was, but the likelihood is, is that by this point that's not what they're going to lead with. Maybe you think it will help you to move forward if you find out why your partner went off with someone else or why they fell out of love with you or why they turned gay. But the likelihood is that this closure is not going to bring you anything more than pain and dissatisfaction because they are probably not going to say or tell you what you want to hear. Accept what has happened, even if you don't approve of it. I don't approve of the way my ex-boyfriend dealt with the aftermath of our breakup, but I know now that I need to accept it. It happened the way that it happened and nothing either of us can do can change it. Constantly focusing on the past is only going to lead to more resentment and ill feeling between us. And I really, really don't want this to be the case. Okay, guys, this brings me to the final point of the podcast, which is that this is just a stop on your journey, not the destination. When we're going through heartbreak, it honestly can feel like we're at the end of the road. But this is a really important one. And this is why I've left it here, because I think it's arguably the most controversial. 
for me, whilst not classifying myself as religious, I do consider myself to be highly spiritual. I strongly, strongly believe that we come to this planet as a soul in a physical body after each lifetime reincarnating to a different time, a different place and on a different agenda, where we choose the challenges we face in each life so that we can evolve further and into a more conscious individual that one day has learned all of the lessons that there are to learn on this earth and then our reincarnation period ends and we evolve to a higher dimension. Now, I'm not really expecting you to resonate with this point. In fact, my ex-boyfriend hated this view so much that our differing views was a definite point of contention in our relationship. I understand that this may be massively triggering for some people, particularly those who have gone through severe trauma and challenges, who would feel that they would never in a million years have chosen that path of distress, pain and heartbreak for them and those around them. However, for me, it is a belief and a mentality that helps me add just a little bit more justification as to why we might be going through such testing and painful experiences. Without this belief, I find myself thinking, how could any power above us be so cruel as to put people through these experiences without any beneficial end goal? If you proceed on this basis of spirituality, which I know that many, many people do, you then also start to understand that whilst we're in existence, People come into our lives, packaged as their very own humans, with their own agendas and journeys to take, who teach us different things about life in line with their agenda that they've come down to earth for. Our path will cross with many others, sometimes for a short while and sometimes for a long while, but with every experience we become a more deep, multifaceted version of our very own human being. We learn more about ourselves and more about one another. We learn what causes joy and pain for all of us. We see how another lives and how they've been brought up and what they believe in and why. We challenge each other and we love each other and we sometimes hurt each other too so that we can all experience these vast range of emotions. We learn to understand more deeply what love is and what loss is. They leave us with a lesson. They will always have taught us something no matter how painful. Everyone we come into contact with is a teacher in some capacity. When I look back at all of my ex-boyfriends, I can see what each one of them taught me. And even though I know right now that this pain is intense and real, I trust that one day, perhaps, the lesson in this journey will become clear too. He accepted me and he loved me for exactly who I was. He taught me that all parts of my soul were lovable, even the parts that I kept hidden away or that I thought were unworthy. He taught me to hold no judgment to those who have a different story to me or to those who are born into different walks of life, races or religions. He taught me that my ambitions sometimes got the better of me and that I needed to be more kind and balanced to myself and those around me. He gave me hope that one day I could get to the bottom of the chronic pain that I live with and that I deserve to live a pain-free life. And he also taught me that I could change the world if I wanted to. Maybe love in its most beautiful, spiritual, wholesome form has no attachment, no expectations and no ownership. Maybe love is a vehicle for us to better understand ourselves. Maybe love is just two people coming together for a short while to act as teachers for each other before going off on the rest of our journeys and to complete our agendas during our time on earth. And maybe these people will come back together one day, somehow, slightly different from the way that they left each other. And maybe one day we will understand why that person treated us the way they did and that maybe they're facing their own battles in the only way that they knew how. And maybe, just maybe, love might be loving someone from afar even when you desperately want it to be up close. 
So my last lesson is that through the pain and the heartbreak, the rejection and the fear that we won't ever find happiness again, we must trust that this is just one stop on our journey and that maybe this lesson right now is that we need to learn to be happy on our own. Okay in the face of loss, okay in the face of suffering, content in our own company, safe and nurtured by ourselves, not by another. And so it's time to move forward now, compassionately. Be gentle with yourself. Understand that your body is going through something intense, both physiologically and psychologically. Allow yourself to grieve, feel, break, cry, rage, whatever comes through. Know that your body is trying to protect you and know that these emotions will come and they will go. Know that your tears are healing and you need to take active steps to move forward. Understand the addiction cycle and take an empowering step towards breaking it. Don't throw away the special memories, but box them up, out of sight and out of mind. Write down how you feel. Find people to talk to about it every day. Tell them when you feel good and tell them when you feel absolutely awful. When you want to message your ex, don't. Write down the message and wait 24 hours to see how you feel. Trust me, you will be glad you didn't send the message. Do not try and beg and convince them to get back with you. You, exactly as you are, are worthy of love, partnership and compassion. You were not put on this planet to beg someone to love you. Work towards accepting the situation, even if you don't approve of it. And know that your desperate need for closure is just your ego's way of seeking connection one last time. Understand that really nothing that they can say will make this situation any better. But know that this is not forever. And in the moments that you think that you can't go on or that you will never survive, that you will, because you will take this minute by minute, hour by hour, and day by day, and you have got through every other awful day that you have had so far. You are not going to have an aha, I'm all better now moment. But one day, you need to believe that you will wake up one morning and your first thought will be how soft your bedsheets are and how blue the sky is outside of your bedroom window and how excited you are for something that you have planned that day. And in that moment, you will realize that for the first time in months, you didn't think about them first when you woke up and you didn't notice that their name hadn't popped up on your phone. And then another day, you'll be standing in the kitchen making a coffee and you'll think of them or someone will mention their name or a song will come on that makes you think of them. And in that moment, it won't take the air out of your lungs anymore. And for the first time, you'll think back to the memories of you two and you will remember that in all of those moments that you loved them, it was worth it. Because in so many of those moments, they loved you too and you know it, even if now it all feels like a huge lie. You shared laughs and secrets and before it all came crashing down, you shared a life together, the two of you. And in that moment, you're going to smile without feeling weird about it. Because together, you grew and evolved and you were an integral stop on each other's journey. And in that moment, you'll almost feel guilty because thinking about them doesn't hurt the way that it used to. For the first time, a fleeting moment, you won't be desperate to speak to them. You will just think about the memory for what it was, with a tiny amount of pain and a lot of love. And it will feel foreign because you should be crying, not smiling. And you will realize that you want to hate them for how they ended it and for what they did to you. But in that moment, you don't. You told them they broke you, but they didn't. You told them that you couldn't live without them, but you can. You are still there, standing, surviving. 
And then you'll snap back to reality and you'll realise that you have a coffee to make and some emails to send and it's nearly the weekend and you are still living. The world is still moving and your life is still happening and you are doing okay, just like everyone who loves you told you you would. This is just part of your story. Healing takes time. I am not there either. So together, let's just keep going. Today, as I record this, for the first time in as long as I can remember, through the dull ache of pain and loss and longing, I'm excited for the future, for me and for you, and for all that lies ahead. So maybe today, just today, even if just for five seconds, you can be excited for your future too. Hello, I'm Mark. And I'm Bethan. And we're the hosts of Seeing Red. We deliver intriguing, terrifying and dumbfounding true crime stories each and every week. With a focus on cases from the UK, we do occasionally venture overseas. We've covered everything from the mysterious death of professional footballer Emiliano Sala to the attempted murder of Victoria Cilias, a woman who fell from the sky and lived to tell the tale. Binge our bulging back catalogue and join us every Wednesday for a new episode of Seeing Red.